my name is Aggie and this is Biohacking Bestie. The one-stop shop for a modern queen where you can find biohacking courses, self-growth courses, and where you can find the most incredible community of women so you can hit all of your biohacking goals and beyond. Welcome, welcome guys to Biohacking Bestie. And today I am so excited because I'm hosting someone who I've been looking up to for such a long time, Dr. Stephanie Estima. She's a figure of empowerment in women's health, focusing on holistic approach that blends modern science with actionable strategies, which I love so much. She has a very keen interest in metabolism, body composition, functional neurology and fem female psychology. Dr. Estima is known for her female-centric approach to ketogenic uh, diet, the Estima diet. And she has helped over 10,000 women in hormone regulation, fat reduction. And yeah, and she's our guest today. So welcome. Hi, how are you? I'm delighted to be here, Aggie. Thank you for having me. I just want to say thank you for everything that you're doing for women in general and everything that you do with your work and kind of like uh, we just dropped in earlier for your podcast and I already expressed how much of a girl crush I have on you <laughs> just because um, you seem to be killing it and it's just like reading the science and also understanding, hey, but what does it actually mean for me as a woman? So I guess my first question to you would be, in your journey, as you navigated the, the medical world and then started your own practice of working with women, what has been the hardest thing for you to unlearn? Oh, that's a great opener. Wow. Okay. Well, I think that the big, the one thing that comes, jumps to mind immediately is that we are not small men with pesky hormones. I think that most of the you know, medical community and the research literature that's available has often studied, you know, teenage, like university students who are trying to make an extra buck. It's usually like the 20, 25 year old men that are where a lot of the research takes place. And for a really long time, women were actually excluded. Cycling women were excluded from randomized control trials and meta-analyses. These are, these are sort of high quality, we'll say, studies because our menstrual cycle was considered a confounding variable because a woman is very different. Oh, if she's, a, if she's cycling and she's still getting her period every month and she's ovulating, she's very different over the course of that 29 and a half or however long the cycle is. How, you know, she's very different over that course of time. And I think it was only in, I want to say 2017 where the NIH mandated that women are to be included as well, because there is such a lack of evidence-based practice or evidence-based literature for clinicians to be able to derive protocols and to serve our beautiful women. And, you know, for people like me, it was like, well, we're just going to play with it. You know, I, this is the data that I have available to me. This is the sort, I always think about evidence-based care for patients sort of as three overlapping circles, like a Venn diagram. It's like, what does the literature say? And sometimes that literature is very sparse. What does the patient want? And then the clinical experience, you know, the clinician's experience and you know, for, you know, in all transparency and honesty, when I was starting to tailor a lot of my protocols for women, I had no idea what I was doing. I was just trying to extrapolate what I knew from the literature and keeping in alignment with and coherence with my patient's desires and just kind of playing. And that's, you know, that's part of the reason why they call it a practice and not a perfect because we are practicing with our patients. We are practicing how to best serve them. And that changes with time. So the biggest unlearning has been to just realize that there are different 
for especially for a woman in her fertile years, there's going to be times in her cycle where she wants to do things, not want to do things. She's going to be more resilient to stressors, you stressors and distressors, which I'm sure we'll talk about today. So good stressors and bad stressors and other times in the cycle where she's not. And, you know, you were just on my podcast and you said something absolutely beautiful. And I'll reiterate it here because it was it was so on point. It's it's really reconnecting and having women understand the power of our cycles and understanding the power of the feminine and being able to cultivate that into our everyday lives. There's times in the cycle where you shouldn't be podcasting. You shouldn't be doing a presentation. And as much as we sometimes just out of necessity have to sort of punch it out, just understanding that different, those different ebbs and flows in terms of how we function, our mood, our affect, our energy, our desire, our motivation, understanding that there'll be ebbs and flows. I think you're already winning, you know, you're already in the top 1% because there's so many women even now, I, you know, I speak a lot to perimenopausal and menopausal women. And the number one thing I will still hear is no one ever taught me that I should be tracking my cycle. Like I've only started in my forties looking at my cycle. And I think that as much as I'm happy that they've come to that in their forties, it's also such a shame because when we go to our primary care practitioners, it will be very useful as a patient to have the data to give to them and say, Hey, listen, I have five years of data that tells me that my cycle is or was 29 days and now it's 26. And I can tell you that day 21 used to be like this for me and now it's like this for me. So I think that while we're getting better at communicating, you know, and I will continue to beat this drum as long as people will listen, but we can get better at data management and understanding how we're different. But that's the language, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, that we need to be able to communicate with our PCPs, with our primary healthcare providers, so that they can best serve us. Because so many, and even my, my training, we had, you know, we got, we had, here's the menstrual cycle. This is when estrogen's high. This is when progesterone, this is the luteal phase. But there was no, even in practice, I started changing the way. So I'm a, I'm a doctor of chiropractic by training. So my love has always been neuromusculoskeletal, right? It's always been like brain, bones, muscles. And I even started changing the way that I was adjusting my women, depending on where they were in their cycle. Like, was it, a, you know, oh, wow. was the type of adjustment a little gentler? Was it a little bit, you know, could they handle a little bit of a bigger adjustment? Was it necessary? So in, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about ligaments and estrogen and tendons and stuff, but I was starting to notice that even the mechanism of like the treatment needed to be uh, if that's a word, you know, it needed to be, you know, uh, changed a little bit based on how the woman was doing, what her stress levels were like, where she was in her cycle. So can you talk a little bit about your personal journey with your own cycle and how your relationship with your cycle evolved over time? Oh, that's a good one. I, I talk about this in the Betty Body, my book, which is actually named after my podcast listeners. We call our podcast listeners our Bettys. So it speaks to my vintage heart. And also, you know, they actually, my community started calling themselves Bettys like because they listen to Better, which is the name of the show. But I detail this and I believe it's chapter one of the book where I had such a tumultuous relationship with my cycle for years. I hated it. I felt like it was a curse. It was painful. I, you know, now, of course, retroactively hindsight, so it was 2020, right? So I was running very estrogen dominant at the time. So very strong, very disruptive PMS symptoms. So my breasts were very 
tender and enlarged. I was holding a lot of water. I remember in the second half of my cycle, I wasn't necessarily tracking, but I I knew that when my period was coming that I couldn't wear rings. So if I wanted to like wear a ring, I was just going to be ringless or like jewelry list that week, right? On my, if, if I wanted to wear anything. For, for a week. Yeah, exactly. Once it's oh, it's so interesting. Yeah. And so has, how, what was that, that aha moment of like, huh, maybe this isn't the worst thing on the planet that I'm just not sure what's, how can I support my cycle so that I can thrive? It was a trip to Italy, which is funny because we were talking about Europe on, on when you were on my show, but I took my children to Italy for summer holiday and we were there for about three weeks. And as you do when you're North American, when you travel to Europe, you want to make it worth it. So you stay there for a couple of weeks and we were there for three. And during that time, I got my period towards the end of the trip. So it was maybe the last week or so of the trip that we were there. And what was shocking to me was despite having all the pasta and all the gelato and all the, you know, the croissant, the cornettos there and the cappuccinos and all the things, I had a wonderful period. There was no breast tenderness. There was no water retention. I normally would medicate. So I would normally take uh, some type of painkiller. And the first usually day or two of getting my cycle was, you know, just loaded up on medications and migraines and I couldn't talk to anybody. And that was not the case at all. It was actually a very joyous experience. I felt like a goddess. In fact, I was, I felt like, wow, this is so (laughs) funny. And it was, it was peculiar to me because it was the same body, obviously the same body that I had that month than, than the previous. And the difference certainly, I mean, you can make the argument that everything's better in Italy, right? But the difference of course, was that I was getting a lot of sunshine. I was getting a lot of low grade activity. My stress levels were much better. I was able to manage my stress through some of these, you know, going out with my kids and sightseeing and spending quality time with them. And so when I came back to Toronto, which is where I'm based, knowing that environment plays a huge role in, you know, our health and, and well-being, I sort of set out on a bit of a journey of, of inquiry, self-inquiry to see, you know, how I could replicate the conditions in Italy. So I can't get the Tyrrhenian Sea and I can't get, you know, I can't get necessarily the food there because it's different, you know, North American and European. I feel like if you had that same diet in Toronto, you probably would put on a lot of. Oh weight. God! I, I mean, well, actually, I don't even have ice cream. I don't have. I don't have those things here, and even same. because I know that I'm, I'm just going to have a terrible reaction to it. So you know, it, it's funny. Sometimes people will say, "Oh, the calories don't count in Italy," and it's like, well, they count, but they're better calories because they're being sourced from like the wheat sources are different, the cows are different. You know, all the things are. Uh, and Europe, you start, yes, you started on my favorite topic, which is like, what's is calorie or calorie? Are calories equal? And if there's such a thing as a good calorie and a bad calorie, and I love that you said that because I feel quite passionate about it. So maybe we should like expand because I don't want people to think that like, oh, e- moving to Italy is the move. No. But it's just like, <laughs> yeah. although if that's I'll, the one, it might be, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, so just to read to it for those of us who are listening. Okay. We have someone who has been trained professionally as a doctor. And yet still, you haven't been educated in for your practice of how to support women according to the cycle, right? Even as a chiropractor, that was just not part of your studies. And so you yourself weren't even aware how to properly support it, which is 
also very telling about how where the medical system is right now. And hopefully it's changing, but like that was just treated as humans. You're treating humans, right? Um, or women, at least similar to men. Then the whole idea of quality of foods and like depending of where that in a way, if you live in North America, you really, I personally don't feel like you, we have a choice not to buy a hack or improve ourselves. I think Europeans can get away with their pizza, pizza and pasta and still be fine. But for us, it's, it's almost feels like it's a choiceless choice because what the food that we have served on regular basis isn't exactly something that would make us feel good. So if you can expand all of, all of these three massive points, I would be very curious to hear what you have to say. Yeah, sure. So one of the things I'll say is in my training, we did have a lot of nutrition. So that's one of the things where I do think that there's a distinction in terms of the educational, uh, maybe some of the differences between the traditional sort of medical schooling and at least the car- most chiropractic schools, as far as I'm aware. Um, I'm, I'm very proud. I'm, you know, class of 2003 from Canadian Memorial chiropractic college. We do get we do get quite a bit of nutrition training, but there isn't the distinction and I don't even think that it was ever, you know, I think that this is more of a nuanced conversation that has sort of come up in the last 10 or so uh, years where we're thinking about how women are actually different and that's part and part of the reason for that is some of the reasons I was outlining before like women were traditionally excluded from research and we just sort of extrapolated and said, well, they're shorter, smaller, little men. So we'll just sort of titrate down and whatever we find in our male, uh, you know, the, the studies that are done with these university men, we'll just sort of apply to women, you know, and hope that it hope that it sticks. So I will say that my nutrition training is was quite robust, but to your point, what there wasn't any distinction between male and female and some of the differences that can occur even metabolically for a woman over the course of her cycle. And I know that we'll talk about this, but one of the sort of key hallmarks in terms of differences of our sort of metabolic capacity is we're actually quite metabolically active in the second half of the cycle. So in the luteal phase, as you very well know, since you wrote a book on this as well, is that we are literally creating an organ. We are, I mean, it's such a funny thing to say it that way, but we are literally creating an organ every single month. So of course your caloric demands, of course you're going to be hungrier. Of course, of course, of course, we're going to be diverting nutrients to the womb space, to the endometrial lining in order to I mean, whether or not you want to have a baby, your biology is going to operate independent of that. And it's going to build up essentially a five-star hotel for a uh, impending, you know, fertilized egg, right? So you're going to be diverting amino acids and free fatty acids and glucose, and then all the minerals like selenium and zinc and, you know, magnesium and all the things to that womb space so that we can, you know, treat the fertilized egg like the five-star guest that it is. And so we are much more metabolically active, let's say in the second half of the cycle. We are, and this is part of the reason why many women will report that they are hungrier in the second half of the cycle. So I know we'll get to this, but I'll just sort of put it, I'll sort of drop the pin now and we can come back to it should you want to. But this is part of the, you know, if you're trying to white knuckle, if you've said to yourself, okay, I'm going to have X amount of calories. Let's say it's, I don't know, 1800 calories a day. And I'm just going to do that all month long. Well, you are going to probably find that in the second half of your cycle, if you are trying to white knuckle your way through that, you are going to be miserable. You're probably going to fall off as I did. So I had also done the setting the target calories, setting the macros, and I'm going to do that all month long. And then of course I would be white knuckling it. And then the fourth week, I would just completely fall off all the cookies, the chips, the crackers, all all the things uh, would be consumed. And then I would blame myself because I would say to myself, why are you such a loser that you can't 
keep to this diet. You can't stick to it all month long. And it was only really when I understood that it was actually my cycle driving some of these hunger, like driving up that hunger because I am, you know, creating, as I mentioned, like creating a new organ every month that I was able to find peace with the idea of eating more in the second half of the cycle and being okay with it. Oh, you touched on again. So let's talk calories because I, I love that you brought that up and this whole idea of just feeling like we're broken where we can't follow a men-centric diet. And so are there good calories and bad calories? And how come we can allow ourselves to have more calories and it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to get, you know, necessarily throw away our fitness goals, right? Because that's the idea. If you're not sticking to 1800s calories and you're not doing the same workout, well, that's you're going to get bigger. And that's right. not exactly the case. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. Good calories versus bad calories. I would say that, you know, when we look at what a calorie is, it's basically your body's ability, like the energy that's expended in order to extrapolate the substrate or the nutrients from the food that you're eating. So very technically, you know, if you have 300 calories of Skittles versus 300 calories of, I don't know, chicken breast or something. Technically it is the same, but of course the signaling and the hormonal cascade and the satiety in the body is, is quite different from those two food groups. So I think that there's a bit of nuance to this question. So yes, technically it's going to take 300 calories you know, 300 sort of kilojoules for you to be able to break down the Skittles or the chicken breast or whatever. But are you going to be satisfied from that 300 calories of Skittles versus like, what's your satiety going to be like between the two? Is there a tendency to overeat, right? Are you going to be just able to have the 300 calories of Skittles or are you going to want more because you're not going to feel like you are satiated. You had mentioned uh, when you were on my show that you would have, I think it was an oat milk latte or something, or maybe a yogurt, something like that. And then you were in the fridge, you know, 45 minutes later, or even just at the end of your meal, because you didn't feel like you were like, I just still need something. And there's mechanisms in the body, certainly in the gut, where your gut is constantly monitoring for protein and fat. So you will continue to eat. And this is part of the reason why a lot of people have trouble with the vegan diet long term is because it tends to be, it tends to be, it's not always, but it can be a very poor source of protein. It tends to be very carbohydrate heavy. And when you're having a lot of carbohydrates, again, when you equate for calories, like if you're having the same amount of calories as someone who's having a higher protein diet, let's say, if you stick to those calories, you know, depending on what your goals are, you can still achieve the same thing. You can still lose the weight. You can still, you know, whatever, but it's going to be orders of magnitude more difficult for you when, because your hunger levels are going to be much higher. Your CCK and some of these proteins that we see and neuropeptide, some of these, some of these elements that we see in the gut that are constantly scanning for protein and fat, and which is what causes a lot of people to graze, right? It's a, what causes, I'll just have a little bit of nuts. I'll just have a little bit of, you know, cookies, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. So are calories equal, you know, in the technical sense they are, but in terms of the signal that they have in the body, it's going to be quite different. And for most cases, when you're having sort of I would say nutrient devoid foods like Skittles or something like that, it's going to be very hard for you to manage your total caloric intake over the day because you are going to be hungrier. You are going to feel hungrier. So, yes. yeah. And I also want to just say that, that like when we think of calories, we think that there is this idea that like, okay, like 
I, I need to eat 1,200 or 1,800 Well, calories. I said 1,800. What I really wanted to say is most women yeah. are trying to do 11 or 1,200. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to give a healthy <laughs> example. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, then there are that, yeah. that. But I also, I couldn't wrap my head around it when I got into first doing keto is that I had twice as many calories and I was the the fittest, you know, with the least amount of body fat. I'm like, wait, so I guess when I say calories are not equal, yes, from the energetical standpoint, yes, but like how come I can quote unquote get away with two and a half thousand calories mm-hmm. and be skinnier? And as a vegan, I was doing a thousand calories and I was putting on weight. And so there's this yeah, there are macros. There's also like the whole conversation of the quality of the food, right? So you mentioned that about Italy, that it's just less processed. You know, there's no glyphosate that, the, that disrupts our gut and all of these issues that all of a sudden the inflammation goes down and our leptin ghrelin get regulated when we eat healthy and we have enough fat. And all of a sudden we don't even crave that many, that much food, but I genuinely probably have twice as many calories, even though people say like, oh, fat is like so heavy in calories. I'm like, I have so much fat and I look great. Mm -hmm. Like I almost have to like look at myself sometimes. I'm like more protein aggy or like more fat because I'm getting almost too skinny with, um, if I don't pay attention to, I try to eat more, not less which is a lot of women have a hard time believing Gosh. that there's a chance. Yeah, this is an unraveling. This is an unraveling that has to happen. And it's like, you cannot have 1100 or 1200 calories indefinitely, and particularly as you age. So, you know, I don't know if you speak about perimenopause or, or menopause at all, but you need... Not yet, but I would love to ask you more questions, actually. Sure, yeah. I, I think that the the 1200 calorie thing for most women, you are going to be in a low energy availability environment and you're going to have, you know, what's called metabolic adaptation. So when we think about the calories in calories out, it can be a bit oversimplistic to think about how, you know, how to manage our calories is like, well, we have 1200 calories, but we burn, you know, 1700 calories in a day, then that's a 500 calorie deficit. You can do that temporarily, but over the long term, your body is infinitely more wise than you could ever, you, know, you cannot out-trick your body. And so what ends up happening is this this concept of, of metabolic adaptation. So you might be, you know, at the gym, whether you're weight training or you are, you know, doing excessive amounts of cardio. And I'll also just say that it's my, my clinical experience that I often see the women who are doing the 1200 calories are also running and doing hours and hours and hours of cardio and not necessarily prioritizing lifting weights because they know that, oh, well, the cardio session is going to burn 400 calories or 500 calories. And my weight training session only burns 80 in the short term. But of course, we know the long-term adaptation to putting on muscle actually revs up your capacity to burn calories anyway. But I digress. But I just want to, yeah. to that point, actually, that whenever I was under eating, I wasn't able to lift weights. Yeah. I was able to do cardio, but I wasn't able, like, that's where I know where I'm under eating. Yeah. On those weeks when I was like super stressed with the book lunch, so I was under eating, like, oh no, I can't lift my regular weights. It's like, oh, interesting. Yeah. Because I didn't have, and even like, and the difference could be within five to six days. Yeah. And your muscles, metabolically active tissue, it's functionally active tissue. It requires food. You need to feed, if you want your muscles to grow, which should be a goal of every single woman on the planet, irrespective of your age, you want to be putting on muscle for metabolic freedom, for your ability to have the bowl of Skittles, should the, you know, should the feeling arise. Your, your muscles are going to be, they are not only a glucose sink, meaning that they are going to help dispose of 
excess blood glucose that's that's in the system, maybe from the bowl of Skittles or whatever whatever you've just had. But they're also, I mean, there's so many good things with with. I don't know where you want to go with this. Like I could, I find myself, I'm starting to get really oh, you excited. Can go anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> but what does your intuition tell you that you think my audience would benefit from the most? Well, I think I, I think the it. yeah, I, I think where I was going, and I'll, I'll tie this in with muscle in a moment, is the 1,200 calories is not going to serve you because that metabolic adaptation. So let me talk about the metabolic adaptation, then I'll I'll jump onto muscle. Your total energy, like your total daily energetic expenditure. So your T, what's called TDEE, total daily energetic expenditure will start to come down. Even when you are at the gym and you are doing the right, you think you're doing the right thing, you're lifting the weights, you're doing the cardio, the energy out. So the calories that, and the energy expenditure in the gym is going to go down, which I think is very cruel, right? If you, if you're not eating enough, your body will understand that and say, all right, we're going to just dial down the calories that we can, that we can burn here. And everything slows down. Your digestive system slows down, right? Because your body, your digestive system is trying to sort of extract every last inch of food that does come through there, which is, you know, we were talking a little bit about this on my show, which is like the gut issues, the constipation issues, the bloating, all Fertility, of that yeah. stuff starts to come when you are chronically calorically restricting. That is so powerful. Sorry, I just want to repeat that too, because this is so powerful. So when I came on your show, we discussed that we know almost every woman in our life that has some sort of bloating and motility digestive issues. But what you're actually making the connection of right now is that often under eating, so being in cal- constant calorie calorie restriction, which is basically what mainstream fitness advice tells you to shred and look good, leads to you having all the digestive issues. Maybe, you know, if you don't have the right motility, it can lead to SIBO, which means that basically it would bloat after almost every vegetable and fruit on the planet, which is brutal. I've been there, done that. And it's the connection is fascinating. Yeah. And if you pay attention to some of the fitness influencers who are shredded, they often will complain about gut issues as well. If you have, you know, individuals that you like and admire, and I'm not saying not to try to aspire to be the best version of yourself, but what I, at least my very sort of loose observation of many fitness, you know, influencers, particularly women, is that they usually have some type of gut issue. And period issue. And yes, and they usually are, yeah, they're usually not cycling regularly as well. So those are things that we want to be thinking about when we are in a caloric deficit. And then the other thing, the other thing I'll also say is you don't actually have anywhere else to go should you want to lose more weight. Do you know what I'm saying? So once you sort of reach this plateau and you're trying to lose more weight, you don't have any, where are you going to go from 1200 calories? You're going to go to 800 and then where are you going to go from there? 400. And, you know, so you have to really think about your, and this comes back to this metabolic flexibility and a safety signal. The more food that you are giving your body, you are sending a safety signal. So you are going to menstruate, which is what every woman should be aiming to do, menstruating like a goddess. Oh, I love that. That sounds like a name of your next book. <laughs> menstruating like, like needs to be a t-shirt. <laughs> Currently menstruating <laughs> like a goddess. Yeah. <laughs> so good. Yeah. We're going to start to emerge company together yeah. with like, just like, just, I love <laughs> it. So I love it. I love it. Um, and then when you're thinking, and then so I'll tie this in with, with training, your muscles need substrate. Your mu- when you are lifting, when you're contracting those sarcomeres, those like, you know, the individual, like the individual muscle cells or muscle units, I'll say, 
those need food. You need to give your muscles food so they can grow in the same way that if you were growing a plant and you just, you didn't put it in any water or you didn't put any water in it, or you didn't put it in soil and you were thinking, well, why isn't it growing? It's because you haven't put it in the environment that allows for the conditions for it to flourish. And the same is true for your musculoskeletal system. So muscle is as I was mentioning before, a glucose sink. So it actually allows you to have more food. It burns, you know, when you have more lean muscle tissue, it allows you to have more food with a little bit more freedom without some of the consequences that many women are concerned with, which is excess, you know, putting on excess adiposity or putting on excess fat. It helps to regulate your blood glucose, which does change as we age, right? So as we get older, a natural consequence of aging is that our we become more insulin insensitive. So when there is blood sugar, blood glucose sort of circulating, your pancreas initially will have to work harder to get the blood glucose into the cells. But when you constantly have a high insulin signal, your cells will downregulate their sensitivity to it. So over time, the net net is that your muscles are going to stop or your all all cells in your body, but it actually insulin insensitivity usually starts in the muscles will stop listening to the insulin signal, which will give us higher blood sugar. And then of course, the net effect of that is that your liver is going to start producing more fat. So we have a spillage now of triglycerides and low density lipoproteins into the blood. And all of a sudden your 40 year olds who might be listening are saying, I don't understand. I've been, I'm eating the same way. I'm training the same way. And all of a sudden my cholesterol levels are through the roof. So this is also why it's really important to be preserve, at least preserving muscle tissue, but ideally adding to it over the years and decades that we are around because it helps to regulate our metabolism, primarily through glucose disposal, as I mentioned, it helps to regulate insulin sensitivity or to promote insulin sensitivity. And then there's other areas that we can kind of geek out on if you'd like, but it's also a very powerful immune modulator. It helps with brain driving up something called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, BD. NF, lots of letters there, just basically is like miracle growth for the brain. It helps your brain preserve your brain tissue. And I, I said this in my book and I'll, I'll say it to you now, it's sort of like tongue in cheek. This is like my humor, which I, I think I'm hilarious. It's like always open mic night in my head, but it's like, if there's an organ that you want really big and thick and juicy, right? It's your brain, right? <laughs> we always want. And so I thought that was hilarious when I first thought of it, I put in the book. So if you get my humor, you know, if, and if you don't, please excuse it. It's just, I'm a nerd. I mean, if you said or thought about anything else in brain, they're very dirty. Right, mind. exactly, I exactly. I don't know what you were thinking about. I was thinking about your 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 brain, your cortex. Your brain, yeah, yeah always mm-hmm. brain, yeah, one hundred percent. Oh, I have so many questions because I love that. So, if you're listening to this, it, you don't need to wait till forty and fifty. Just imagine that every year of your life, why don't you just try to add just a little bit more protein? Just understanding that, okay, I need to slowly, you know, just because I had two eggs uh, for breakfast for the last 15 years of my life, maybe I can just add some piece of salmon or whatever it is as, you know, as we get older. I don't like the word age makes me feel like it's getting worse, but it's not if you're doing it the right way. I think that's society. I think that's, I, I posted something to my Instagram the other day. It just really spoke to me. I saw someone say something. It was like a little meme and it said something like, she's over 40. Oh my God, she looks amazing. What's her secret? And then, you know, underneath it was like, her secret is 40 isn't old. You've just been brainwashed by society to think that you're rotting every single second the day you turn 40. And I think that aging, you know, I'm 46. So I am definitely square in the middle of perimenopause moving towards menopause as 100% of women will eventually go through. And 
you know, sometimes you look at, you know, world events and certainly I'm not a political commenter and I try to stay away from that as much as I can, but we're so lucky to be alive. You know, we're so, it's like aging is such a privilege. It's such a privilege to become a grandmother or, you know, a mother Mm -hmm. and then a grandmother. And then maybe like I, I lived with my, I knew my great grandmother. So, and she was nineties, I think she was 96 when she eventually passed away. But I think that that's such a beautiful thing. And you think about some of the wars and where, you know, we have wars on women and children and, and men are, you know, dying. And it's, it's, you know, maybe we'll have an offline conversation about this, but I'll just say that I feel like aging is a privilege. And I think that maybe we need to, in society, move away from anti-aging and moving more towards aging well. What does a well-lived life look like? What is the wisdom that you've accrued? How can you, you know, help the women who are, you know, behind you, who are on the same path as you, how can you elevate them? And how can you learn from your elders? And how can we start reclaiming the wisdom and the power of the matriarch, of the grandmother, of the great grandmother, and the wisdom that they've accrued over the over the you know course of their life. Yeah, and it does feel like we're using the word aging interchangeably with the word rotting or yeah. deteriorating yeah. instead of just like growing old, right? Which is beautiful, mm-hmm. like a tree. I love that. So let's talk about the diet. So what was the driving force behind creating your own diet and kind of just realizing like this is all really good, but. I need to create the Estima diet and just help women navigate this crazy uh, landscape of diet advice that isn't serving them. Well, it originally didn't start as a female-focused program. I'll say that. So when I was in, uh, still in private practice, practicing in Toronto, we would run nutrition programs because it goes, you know, the very, you know, back of the envelope, 30-second chiropractic philosophy is we want to be managing our physical inputs, right? So we want to be lifting weights. We want to be getting rehab. We want to be working on flexibility and mobility. We want to be managing our chemical inputs. So that's the medications we take or don't take, preferably don't take. And then also your diet, which is chemical signaling. And then of course, our emotional health, right? So what is the, are we, should we be fasting from social media? <laughs> should we be, you know, having people around us who charge our batteries or drain our batteries? So it's sort of like chemical, physical, emotional. So I would often run nutrition programs in, and I would run fitness pro. I would, you know, we do squat challenges and all these different fun things in the in the clinic. And so I I started a ketogenic diet uh, program originally in the clinic for you know all any patient who wanted to sort of participate in it. And very quick, it was a ketogenic style diet, and it was like I believe it was seventy percent fat, twenty percent protein, and then the fill. So it was like ten percent uh, carbohydrate. And very quickly noticing that it was very apparent with the with the husband and wife couples so we would have the husband and wife sign up for the program and then the guy would come in like two weeks later and he was like doc this is just the best like i've lost 20 pounds and my energy is through the roof and you know we would do labs with them and things and like their testosterone was like everything everything was great and then the woman would be like i don't get it i we are eating the same foods we are doing the same thing we're in the same environment and he's lost let's say 10 or 20 pounds or whatever it was it was always an extreme amount. Like men very easily would drop the weight. And then she would say, I've lost two pounds and I've been stuck at the two pounds now for a month and I don't understand why. And so that sort of clued me into, okay, so something a little different here. So I started playing a little bit with having them track their menstrual cycle and how their mood, their energy, their affect changed over the cycle. 
And I just have to say, like, God bless these women who allowed me to, like, you know, practice on them. They were essentially my <laughs> guinea pigs. Uh, and then we started, and, and sort of the, the methodology sort of was born from that. So beautiful, because you probably were at the forefront, sorry to interrupt, but you were at the forefront of adjusting diet to the cycle. Because, you know, even when I got into living according to the cycle three or four years ago, that was so low key. So I could only imagine what it was like, you know, when you were doing it in the practice for the first time to like be, oh, dang, like I, there's, there was no one to like refer to almost, right? Yeah. It was just completely, honestly, it, at some points it just felt like a shot in the dark. Like some things worked, some things didn't. <laughs> and I, so then I started sort of playing around with it, revisiting, you know, notes and reading PubMed and like, how does estrogen affect, you know, what is, what's our tendency for resilience in the first half of the cycle versus the second half. So we were playing a lot with that and it took me gosh, I I can't say exactly now, maybe a year to come up with something that I felt like was reproducible. Like I could reproduce something pretty consistently for women. And so what ended up, what we ended up doing was there would be a therapeutic intervention of the ketogenic diet initially. So to get that little weight loss, to get that little, you know, shedding of water, reducing the bloat, which, you know, also can sort of ramp up your dopamine, uh, which also keeps your motivation high to continue with the diet, which is important. And then from that therapeutic intervention, maybe it was a month, uh, it depended on the woman. So sometimes I had women who were dealing with endometriosis or PCOS. I needed them to do that a little longer. I needed to clamp down on their carbohydrates a little longer. But if you weren't dealing with a some type of hormonal issue like Hashimoto's or PCOS or something like that, then what I started to do was cycle it. So it was first half of the cycle, we could do more aggressive fasting. We could clamp down on carbohydrates a little bit more. And then the second half of the cycle was ramping up the protein. Well, I wouldn't say ramping up the carbs, but we would say, so moving from, let's say 70, I think we were 70, 20, 10, and then we would move to 40, 40, 20. So it was 40% fat, 40% protein, and then 20% carbohydrate. And that seemed to be like just the sort of, you know, magic sauce for women. They needed more protein in the second half of the cycle, much more satiating for them because they're, they're hungrier, more carbohydrates. So it's almost like a doubling of the carbs in the second half of the cycle. The other week I would do that actually was week two. So I would do 70, 20, 10 in week one and three, and then I would do 40, 40, 20 in week two and four. So week two, I wanted more protein because I was also counseling my patients on training and proper technique with squatting and pull-ups and all the things. So I wanted them to have more protein to drive, you know, something called muscle protein synthesis, which is just kind yes, of what it, I'm so glad you brought it yeah. up because it was my next question to you. Yeah. So let's explain that because it sounds really fancy. Yeah. But what exactly does it even mean? Yeah, this is one of the few examples in science where the name actually indicates the process. Sometimes you have like, you know, Bohr's Law or, you know, you have something named after someone and you have to just, you know, the Warburg effect. So it's, you know, you have to really understand who the person was and what their contribution was. Here with muscle protein synthesis, you're synthesizing muscle proteins. So it's very clear. And you can, so there's a couple of ways that you can drive MPS or muscle protein synthesis. One is obviously lifting weights. So there's a mechanical stimulus. So when you are breaking down muscle fibers in the gym, which should be a goal of yours, you are going to stimulate MPS, muscle protein synthesis, to repair the the fibers that have been damaged and to grow better ones. So there's like usually a turnover and your efficiency, like the muscle efficiency becomes better. That's how you actually get stronger over time. So that's a mechanical stimulus. You can also do that with the diet, right? So you can also stimulate muscle protein synthesis with protein. So increasing your protein in the diet. Now, 
not all protein is created equal, which we'll get to in a moment. But when we are having sufficient amounts of, in particular, an amino acid called leucine, there are others, isoleucine, and, and there are other amino acids, but this one in particular seems to be the forewoman. She seems to be the gatekeeper. And once we sort of reach critical mass, uh, you know, critical minimum effective dose, let's say with leucine, then we can start this process of MPS or muscle protein synthesis. So I am, I'll state my bias insofar as I like animal proteins more than I like vegetarian or vegan proteins. And I'll say that it's not that you can't do it with vegetables. So I often am asked like, what about pea protein or what about rice protein or what about soy protein? So it's not that you can't do it with those types of, like if you're having like a vegan protein powder or something, or even like a tofu or a tempeh or something like that, you can still get there. You just often, what needs to happen is you need to ingest more of it in order for you to reach sort of the, the level that you might by consuming a whey, pro, you know, whey protein powder or like an animal protein, like grass, you know, beef or chicken or liver or goat, that kind of thing. Or I shouldn't say liver. Liver doesn't have it. So, you know, if you are someone who's concerned with calories, you have to think about if you're a vegetarian, are you going to need to, by necessity, overeat, overconsume your calories in your in your protein sources in order to get the results? And most of the time, the answer is yes. So. For those of you that are not willing to consume animal proteins for whatever reason, it's totally fine. You can do it. You can still get there. You have to do your jurisprudence and you have to be someone who knows how to combine all of her amino acids and all that. And that's fine. But just know that you're probably going to need to consume more calories in order to get there. What do you think about the connection of being able to absorb? Because I think that's what a very interesting point with like, as we age, we produce less digestive enzymes. And so... From my experience, I, I mean, I always try to have digestive enzymes almost at every meal, but especially when I'm having protein powders, yeah. uh, just to make sure that I don't have any undigested protein in in my gut. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I think that there's different bioavailability of different proteins as well, right? So when we think about animal proteins, and actually I'll include soy in this as well. So for those of you that love soy protein, you know, the bioavailability of those proteins are very high. It's high 90s. I don't know the exact number off the top of my head. It might be 96 or 97% bioavailability, which is great, which means that you are the protein that you're putting into your meal. Let's say you're having a whey protein powder or soy protein powder or an animal, you know, grass-fed beef or something like that. Most of that is getting absorbed and utilized. When we look at pea proteins, uh, rice proteins, the bioavailability markedly drops off. So uh, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but it's going to be something like instead of 96% availability, we're looking at something like 60 to 70, maybe 75% bioavailability. So again, the there's sort of a two-pronged issue here. One is that you don't have like protein powders that are vegan or vegetarian, don't have a lot of leucine to begin with. And the bioavailability of the protein is also very poor. So again, this com- if you're someone who's concerned with calories, then consuming this again, you, you know, you're going to have to, by, by necessity, have to consume more of it. So that's super interesting. I love that we're both kind of understanding how different it is for us women to work out, you know, eat and, and fast according to our cycle. So if you can touch upon fasting and working out, and because we mentioned a lot about muscle, yeah. but how would that influence us? And what happens when we're working out while we're fasted or what do you recommend? 
I am so happy you asked this question. I put something up on my Instagram a couple of weeks ago and I was not expecting people to be so um, maybe activated by passionate. it. Yeah. Pa- we'll say passionate. That's a great <laughs> word. Passionate. So inspired to comment. <laughs> uh, and it was basically like a silly little meme. It was like a you know picture of Kylo Ren, if anyone is a Star Wars fan. And I said, you know, when you know that you should you know, eat before you train. And then like the little line underneath it was his part in the movie where he said, I know what I have to do, but I don't know if I'm strong enough to do it. So fasting is something where I probably like you have changed my mind on it over time. So I used to try to push my fasting window far back into the day. So I would try to fast until noon or fast until one o'clock let's say in the afternoon. And then my fasting window would last for seven or eight hours after that. So I would be eating at, you know, until maybe seven or eight o'clock in the evening. What I found when I paired, and this is just my, so I'll just speak about this from an N of one, from my own experience. This is not to- You didn't run clinical studies Yeah, this is no, yeah. Um, (laughs) But but I will say that there are, okay, so I, I, let me, I want to get to fasted working out with, with fed working out. I'll just tell you my experience and I'll talk about fasted versus fed cardio, fasted versus fed working out. I tend to work out in the morning. So I like to wake up. I like to have my coffee, you know, and I like to listen to the birds, like to be outside. And then I like to be in the gym. And I did that fast for years. Then I would still push my window afterwards. And I found that I could do it, but it was very difficult on my system. Even though I was having enough calories, I just didn't enjoy it. So I started to sort of almost phasically shift the fasting window to earlier in the day. So I started eating right after I worked out. And then most recently I now work, I eat before I work out. And yep, same. And then you have early dinner. Yeah, early. Di- like I like the seniors, but like I like to be finished eating around four o'clock. Oh so that's like my oh ideal. Oh my god, we would be besties. Yeah. <laughs> we would one hundred percent be besties because it's so hard to find people to have dinner at four. Yeah. So even today, we're going out for dinner with my fiance, and the booking is at four thirty. Yeah, it's the best. And it's so easy to get a table. It's the best, <laughs> and you have the whole restaurant to yourself. The re- service is great. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Now, I will say that there does continue to be, especially people who are proponents of fasting, will often talk about fasted cardio or fasted working out versus fed. And the literature that has been done on this, there's actually been, there's quite, there's quite a robust amount of, of evidence to suggest that if your goal is body composition changes, it actually doesn't matter. So you can work out fasted, you can do fasted cardio, you can do fed cardio, when you are working out fasted, you will burn more calories during the activity. But of course, your body being infinitely more wise than we ever could hope for will downregulate your caloric output as soon as the exercise is finished. And it'll also upregulate your hunger hormones. So the net effect over the day is the same. So if you eat before you train or you eat before you do cardio or you fast doing your cardio or you're working out, it is for body composition, there's no difference. So just pick what you like. However, if you are someone who is concerned about performance in the gym, if you're someone who's concerned about muscle glycogen recovery and the long and short term adaptations to training, so that's putting on more tissue and then also your recovery from your exercise workouts, it does, there's very clear, there's a very clear signal that eating prior to your training sessions is far more superior in terms of performance in the gym. 
And that's just kind of common sense, right? If your body has food, it has something that it can use. It doesn't have to draw on the stores that it already has. And then that's going to also help with muscle tissue remodeling. It's going to help with, like I said, short and long-term adaptations um, to training. So I am someone who has now switched to making sure I eat prior to my training sessions because performance is a big part. Like that's a big goal for me. I want to be able to feel strong. I want to feel, I don't want to feel like I've bonked. Like I don't want to feel like I've fallen off of a wall during my, during my sessions. I were exactly the same. I went through the exact same journey. So doing fasted workouts, even lifting weights during my workouts. And then realizing that like, well, I can't lift this heavy, but if I lift heavier, then I build more muscle. And the more muscle I have, the more naughty, quote unquote, food I can get away mm-hmm. with. So I started with, I'm like, oh, wow, like maybe I don't have to push myself and be hungry in the morning. And that was, I guess, what I really love what you bring to the table is just that like looking instead of things out of a context of two hours and looking at them from a context of a year, for example, yeah. like what does it mean for me in a year? Yeah. Same with calorie restriction, right? Like it's sure there is this advice and how does it apply in a context of your life right. and all the other var- like variables. Like who cares if you can get in shape for six weeks out of the 80 years that you're here, you know, like if you yeah. can, if, who cares that you got into the bikini or you lost 10 pounds or 20 pounds for six weeks? Out of the 80, 90, whatever, how many years you're here. What matters is what happens over the course of your entire life, right? So you can't do 12 And you're kind of setting yourself... Yeah, sorry. No, no, please. I was just going to say you're setting yourself up for failure. So mm. I would love for you before we even... Uh, I have so many questions, but I want to kind of explain what happens in their body when we yo-yo dieting, right? So it's, it's very common for women to have this idea, shred for the wed or... Shred for <laughs> I the wed, I haven't heard that. That's funny. Yeah. But like, yeah, so it's like lose, like we have this event, all of a sudden we feel like, wow, I got myself to a point where I'm really not happy. I'm going to calorie restrict and do these fasted workouts. And then we bounce back. So what happens if we do it three, four, five times in our life that we we will shred and then bounce back to our previous weight. Well, I think that the overall thing is that it's incredibly frustrating and it's incredibly demo- <laughs> demotivating, right? To be losing the same 10 or 15 pounds over and over again. I would say psychologically, it probably puts you at a greater risk for failure to start anything new because you're going to say, well, mm-hmm. I did it for the high school reunion or I shred for the wed or whatever. And I did this one thing, two things, these one-offs, and then it always comes back. So I think psychologically we're, and this is, you know, I'm starting here because I think that people underestimate how our psychology influences our behaviors, like your state, you know, the story that you're telling yourself is going to dictate your state, right? So, but also in all areas of life, like what if you're not starting a new business because you feel like, well, I never, I never follow through. I always fall off the thing. I start something, but I can never finish it. And it's so, I hear this from women all the time when they start diets where they might start the diet and maybe they had some success with it, but then it doesn't you it doesn't translate into a long-term change for them. And then what do they do? They say, what's wrong with me? Why couldn't I stick to it? Rather than maybe looking at the diet or the protocol and saying, this is probably not sustainable over the long, like anybody can fast aggressively for six months, you know, anybody can, or a couple of weeks or whatever it is. The light, like humans don't like to be uncomfortable, right? So the likelihood of you sticking to that over the long term is very poor. So the gaining and losing over the course of your life, I think is very demotivating. What we know about metabolism, interestingly, 
is that even it tends to remain relatively constant. So this is actually a newer finding. We were always taught, well, as you age and over the age of 25, we start to see the steady slow decline. But for women, and I'll send you the study if you'd like to link to it, it's very interesting. They had a really nice N, like the N was like 6,000 uh, like 6, maybe, 7,000 people that they followed over time. 64% of the, of the cohort was women. So you're also getting like a female signal in there as well. And what they noted was, was from 20 to uh, like age 20 to 60, the metabolism is relatively constant, relatively constant. So that basically means that whole myth of like, I'm slowing down metabolism is not true. That's right. They do start to see a decline at about 63, right? So at 63, we do start to see a decline. And I think they looked at- 63 years old. 63 years of age. Yeah. So they looked at women and men up until I want to say it was like 95 or 96 years of age. And they noted that the 90, you know, the 90, the the cohort in their 90s, I think that their metabolism was like 20% lower than the cohort in their 20s to 60s. So- the net effect, so you're not, da- you don't have a damaged metabolism. So that's the, that's the main message here. So if you've gained and lost, gained and lost, gained and lost, you haven't damaged anything. You're not broken. Your body is just adapting to the signals and the environment that you're giving it. It's just a matter of finding the right thing that you can adhere to over the course of time. Like I said, who cares if you lose weight for six weeks for the high school reunion or whatever, when you're going to live to 90 anyway, how, what, what is the thing that's going to work for you over the course of your life? So the metabolism piece is really important because I think that a lot of women come into, you know, dieting or wanting to look better, thinking that their metabolism is broken or that something, their metabolism is slow. And it's like, well, it might be slower because you are losing muscle tissue, but you can certainly correct for that at any point in your life. So whether, and this is another thing that we we used to think you can only really put on a significant amount of muscle prior to menopause because we have all these anabolic hormones. We have the testosterone and the estrogen in abundance in women. But we know now, of course, in menopause, and I'm sure you've seen people online, there's like 60-year-olds and 70-year-olds and 80-year-olds that have a significant amount of muscle tissue. So whether you are 65, 45, 25, you know, the best time to have started muscle training, I will say is like 10 years ago. The second best time is today. So if you haven't, if you you didn't start it 10 years ago, no problem. You can start today. Well, I have so many questions. I haven't even gotten to the questions I've been meaning to ask you, but just the final one, I want to ask you about the connection between our posture and the cranial adjustments and release and our well-being, our health. And why is it so important? Oh, this is a good one. This is a very chiropractic question. Thank you for asking it. Because <laughs> uh, I just, I only recently discovered that it's probably chiropractor is my favorite person on the planet. And I was just like, I really so much. I want to cry. Like, why is this connected? I don't understand. Oh, it's so funny. Every time I have a neck adjustment, so shout out to my chiropractor, Christina. Every time she adjusts me, I cry. Uh, and it's usually like the, it's the occiput. So it's like the right at the top, right at the top of the neck. We call mm-hmm. it C0, yeah. right? So there's seven. Oh, I can even feel it that it needs to be adjusted because my chiropractor taught me like what to look out for. Yeah. Yeah, there's just, you know, I think that women typically where we tend to hold tension is axially. So it tends to be in the neck even in the shoulder area, right? So that's a little bit more appendicular, mm-hmm. but we tend to hold a lot of tension sort of in the neck and shoulder area. And I often joke and say like women carry the world on their, you know, on their shoulders. So it's no, no, no surprise that that's where a lot of our attention is. The other thing with women, I will say as well, 
uh, and this is kind of, this is a little technical, but I think your audience can handle it. But the necks, female necks, and this is like from 16 years in private practice and like X-raying, I don't know how many hundred, like lots and lots of thousands of women, they're longer. So women have more elongated necks. We're more like giraffes, right? We have that sort of long, beautiful neck. And normally a curve in the neck, we want to see, it's like a banana shape. We call it lordosis. It's like a backward C. But when you have a longer neck, you are much more predisposed to distortions in that neck. So what I would often see with women is that not only would that curve flatten, but in many cases it would reverse. So we would we would see like, um, we would call it like an S shape. It's just like a serpentine shape where we would have parts of the neck that were actually kyphotic or, or like the, there's a backwards facing curve rather than a forwards facing curve. And so this is going to put an inordinate amount of tension on the supporting postural muscles in the neck. So in and around, like, so the, you know, the occiput, as you were mentioning, that is a major attachment point for the trapezius, the splenius, the, you know, semi, there's all, all the muscles in the neck and the, and, and the, a lot of the muscles in the back, actually, like the trapezius comes up there. We have a lot of attachment in, in the neck. And so when you have distortion at the osseous, when you have bone distortion, so if you have the the curve of the neck is off, you have the muscles, which are, you know, I would always say in practice when I was explaining to patients, they're almost like sponges, right? So they will sop up the glucose, literally, like we were talking about. They also sop up emotion, right? So again, when we are thinking about being emotionally and spiritually healthy, your muscles are also going to hold on to a lot of that residue. So if you're a woman who is constantly burning the candle at both ends, you're driving your kids around to soccer and you're trying to make the marriage work and you're trying to make the career work and you're, you know, doing the laundry and all, you know, all the things, and maybe you don't have a really good support network, your muscles are going to be sort of holding, and this is a bit more, this is not sign, this is not, this is more, maybe a bit more woo, but your your muscles are going to yeah you're yeah all about that <laughs> your muscles are going to hold on to that right this is why you know we always see people like they brace right it's like that sympathetic dominance right it's that fight or flight so when you release that through a chiropractic adjustment i don't know how technical you want to get i can super nerd out here but I'll, like when you when you adjust <laughs> someone you're resetting uh, something called the muscle spindle the muscle spindle is involved in how long the muscles are going to be. Like what's the resting tension? The Golgi tendon organ is another, uh, the GTO is another area in the neck or whenever you're adjusted, that's going to be reset as well. So the reason why we want to cry or the reason why we might get emotional after a neck adjustment, uh, especially higher up in the neck, I often find that I, I always cry with like C01 and two is because you're resetting the length. You're allowing for that like tension to sort of drop out of the shoulders. And you're like, oh, actually... This is what I, this is what normal feels like. Like I have been holding myself so tight and tense. So that's sort of a, you know, the, the best I can sort of do on the spot in terms of explaining why that, why that is. But every woman, almost every woman, and I would also say this as well in the luteal phase, if you get cervical adjustments, you will also release more. So you are just a bit more, you're a bit more sensitive in the luteal phase as well. So cervical adjustments in the luteal phase really, really good therapy, like generally good therapy for like mechanics, but also for emotional release as well. Oh, yeah. I love that. Uh, Stephanie, where can my viewers find you and my listeners? Because oh. this is super fascinating. And so I imagine that your podcast talks, dives in 
a lot about into a lot what we just talked about. Oh, thank you. That's so gracious of you. So yeah, my podcast, I'm a podcast host as you are. So my podcast is called Better with Dr. Stephanie. And like I mentioned, uh, if you are interested in joining the Bettyverse, we would love to have you. So we talk to thought yeah. leaders such as yourself and other scientists and researchers and, you know, anyone who can speak to what it means to live a well-lived life. So we talk about metabolism and fitness and hormones and stress management and pleasure and joy and all the things. So you can find me wherever you're listening to Aggie. You can find me if you just search better with Dr. Stephanie, that's where I am. We are gearing up to release uh, I've, the Estima diet. As you mentioned, I am actually updating it and expanding it to include perimenopausal and menopausal women. When I first wrote the diet, it was for women who are cycling. And now I want to also include my beautiful Bettys who are in their perimenopausal and menopausal years for that, sort of the second and third steps. So it's not available yet, but if you go to our website or my website, drstephanieestima.com, you can sign up for my newsletter and we, off, we, you know, we give our community, uh, I send a newsletter out every week. It's called the mini pause and we explore conversations around hormone. Like we give action items and, and all of that and announcements are always in there as well. Amazing. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you for being so graciously share everything that you know with my audience. I love you so much and thank you guys for listening. Thank you so much.